This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, the NTSB attacks pilot mental health concerns. And the EcoPulse six-engine hybrid records its first flight. The Collings Foundation decides to end aircraft tours. That's pretty big news, Ian. And speaking of big news, intentional crasher Trevor Jacob lands a six months in jail after that wallet publicity stunt. Oh, you should put that on his business card, intentional crasher. (laughs) I like that. Came up with that. Yeah. And finally, a surprise to everyone, Vans Aircraft has entered Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Ian, are you ready to do some hangar talk? Let's do it. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. 1056, turn right, heading 130, counterpack final, 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. Ian, tell us about our guest. Yeah, it's uh, a guy everybody knows with one that not as many people know, but a great guy. Uh, so our guest is Edward Norton, the actor and longtime pilot. And as we will learn, new public benefit pilot, having flown the 100,000th mission for Angel Flight West. And so he will join Josh Olson, who is the director of Angel Flight West, talking about that flight and Angel Flight West's mission. Well, Ian, thanks for grabbing Edward Norton for that and and Josh. And listen, uh, just a reminder, Edward flies the AOPA, I want to say it's a 1999 to 2000 sweeps giveaway that yeah. we call the Aero SUV. Yeah, a 206. And he has owned it, as he will tell us, he's owned it since the early 2000s. It's been like 20 years now, and he flies it everywhere, loves it. So, yeah, can't wait to to share that with everybody, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. But first, let's talk about the NTSB holding its forum recently on mental health and specifically about how pilots are avoiding mental health treatment for fear of losing their medicals. Yeah, and this is no surprise to us or to other folks who have listened to Hanger talk in. But, you know, we talked about this a while ago when federal air surgeon Dr. Susan Northrup came on the scene in 2021 she said she was going to advocate for mental health mm-hmm. awareness and possibly some changes. And it looks like she has pushed the agenda a little bit and the NTSB is on board now and, and things might change and open up a little bit more, right? Yeah. The, I mean, first of all, I got to say, this is the absurdity of the FAA in that the federal air surgeon, the person who is supposed to be responsible for these decisions, is having to essentially publicly advocate for changing them because the process in doing so inside the FAA is so laborious. So that's right. That just goes to show that even even inside the FAA, if they are in favor of it, and AOPA obviously has pushed for this as as have many others. This stuff takes a lot of time. Uh, it's a heavy lift. But yeah, the NTSB getting on board with this. They held this forum this past week as we record this. Right. This is obviously an issue that's important to many pilots. It, it's also important to the public. I mean, this got NPR did a story about this on Morning Edition because I think the testimony was pretty strong from one of their guests. So yeah, it, it's a big issue even to the public. It is. It is, Ian. And just to clarify, the NTSB chair is Jennifer Hamandy. And so she chaired the NTSB session Mm -hmm. and there were folks from all walks of life. There were mental health specialists, safety experts, pilots and government agencies and aviation industry professionals all interested in moving this idea forward. You know, the thing is that uh, pilots, most pilots, more than 50 percent of pilots are afraid to tell their doctors if they have any kind of mental health challenges. Yeah. And I will I will say this, like when um years and years ago, I was afraid to go to 
even a marriage counselor, you know, for fear of that uh, yeah. showing up on my report, you know, on my third class medical. Now, I, I want to uh, reemphasize everything is fine between uh, wife Lisa and myself, ex <laughs> except for I had a, an unexpected house guest last night, Gerald Herbert, a great friend of mine from uh, from AP in New Orleans. He flew a Cessna 172 up here. Lisa's upset about that because it was a last minute crash out on our couch. But listen, you know, a lot of pilots might have marriage challenges. And yeah. I know, I, like I said, I was afraid to even to go to a counselor. So this is a big deal, you know? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And in fact, it, it comes up often people say, well, go to a life coach, right? Because we have to report any sort of contact with a mental health professional, right. which is, you know, geez, what does that even mean? So yeah, it is a sticky issue. I mean, I, to me, it comes down to, let's talk about it from the commercial standpoint first. Okay. Because, you know, we just had the the thing with the pilot out west who tried to take over control of the airplane. Turns out he was- Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was depressed and untreated. Yeah. In the cockpit and said, just just had a bad day. Yeah, yeah, really <laughs> yeah. bad day. Yeah. But he wasn't the pilot in command. He right. was just he was jump flying jump seat. Yeah. Right, yeah. And he hadn't been treated, and his family said he was afraid of losing his medical. And, you yeah. know, this is a guy, I don't know about their specific work rules. Theoretically, there are some protections for commercial pilots. They've got disability insurance and maybe protection from their union. And that's what one of the pilots who talked to, at the seminar said, Troy Merritt, um, said he's happy he got treatment, commercial pilot. He's getting some amount of income as a result of their, their agreement and the disability. But, you know, yeah. you and I, if we want to fly recreationally and we start seeking mental health treatment, we know that, okay, even if we do get our medical back, it's going to be a process. I mean, a lengthy process. It is. It is. Well, the, you know, that one study from uh, 2023 found that 56% of U.S. pilots reported a history of healthcare avoidance yep. behavior yep. due to the fear of losing their flying status. That's in Lillian Guile's story. And I think that is pretty significant, Ian, because it reinforces what we just said. And listen, you mentioned something about a life coach. Yeah. Instead of uh, yeah, a mental health professional. Well, you know, here's the thing. Something hit pretty darn close to home for us, Ian, when we were dealing with um, the loss of Richard McSpadden, a longtime mm -hmm. friend and the head of the ASI. You know, I wanted to, to make sure that I had a little backup, too. So. Our uh, AOPA folks said, well, we're going to have some counselors here for people to talk to. But I was afraid that that would negatively affect my flight status. Yeah. So I wanted to get clarification before even meeting someone there who, who was basically a grief counselor. Yeah. It did not affect it in any shape, uh, form, or factor. But that is pretty unclear, I think, to a lot of people. Yes, so absolutely. Th that is why this is a pretty big deal. Yep. So making making progress, small step by small step. So I think it's good the NTSB brought some some of that to light to the public. So, hey, new technology. We love talking about this stuff. Hybrid electric now with the EcoPulse, the first flight with the electronic engines or the, you know, the hybrid power plant with the EcoPulse. This is basically a TBM when in combination with Dahar, Saffron, and Airbus that are they're working on in France. Heavy hitters. So listen to the names. Say it again. Dahar, Saffron, and Airbus. Yeah, that's right. That's a big deal. Yeah. So they're all working together on this essentially technology demonstrator. It had its first flight 100 minutes flying. So it wasn't just a takeoff and landing where they exercise these uh, electric motors. Six motors. Yeah. Three per side. Yeah. So this looks a lot like, you know, the X project that NASA was working on with the uh, Technum, where they put like a bunch of electric motors along the leading edge. That's essentially what it looks like, but fewer. It does look like that. Yeah. So interesting concept. It's basically, you know, an electronic motor with a generator powered by the gas turbine, uh, an Airbus battery. So yeah, a little complicated, kind of like the Prius, like you and I've talked about. So yeah, yeah. But the Prius does work. And I, you yeah. know, I've long been a proponent for a hybrid electric type of technology to propel us to the future, pun intended. Mm -hmm. But I think that that might hold the most promise. I think electric only might be really a tough sell because of the power to, to weight, yep. you know, and I think the hybrid model could work, yep. you know, and, I, and, and it might not be that much more expensive. Heck, it might even be less expensive. And yeah. that's what we really want. Yeah, you know? right. Because those electronic motors are so much more reliable. I love lots of stuff about this story. One is the photo that came out as a result. Um, GA News has this. And I love they have, you know, you think this high tech, you know, these are the top European aerospace engineers 
flying this super modern technology demonstrator. And I love it because they've got tufts of yarn on the wing taped down. Taped on there. I love it. Right. It's uh, like scotch tape or <laughs> Old something. school. But that is kind of cool because because yeah. you do want to know if the air flowing over the wing is yeah. disrupted yeah, from negatively yeah. by the three motors. On each side. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, that is kind of a cool uh, uh, picture. And yeah. kudos to General Aviation News for putting that out there. Then, you know, that aircraft was unveiled at the 2019 Paris Air Show. So the idea was, so it's been around for a while. But, you know, like you said, 100 minutes of flight. That's more than just up and down yeah. and extensive ground test and, and 10 hours of flight tests uh, with the electrical system inactive just to make sure that. Yep. that so they flown yeah, the airframe. Yeah. So stay tuned for more to come, I would say. Yeah, definitely. OK, so from the future all way back to the past, and that's the Collings Foundation. In a surprise, probably to none of us, that they are going to they announced they are going to end their aircraft tour operation. As you recall, they had the big accident with the B-17. Right. In Connecticut, the, the 909 yep. it crashed. Uh, guys, it's been to since 2019, so it's been a while. Oh, wow. Yeah, that has been a long time. But they were down They were down for the count. You know, but don't forget, 2019 and 2020 and 2021, we mainly lost because of, of COVID concerns. Mm -hmm. So a lot, of, a lot of folks weren't operating anyway. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, you are right. Ian. that deadly crash of that B-17 really threw things back for a, a long time. And to me, it is a surprise that they're no longer touring on one hand. But on the other hand, it's not a surprise because yeah. you knew there would be repercussions from that. Yeah, that's right. And then they say, I think that it's like, oh, not necessarily directly related, but of course it wouldn't. I mean, I think, you know, has to be kind of the major factor. They are not shutting down as an organization, we should say. Right. They say, quote, we're moving forward on our long-term plans to bring the aircraft from a nationwide flying exhibition to permanent display here in Massachusetts. Right. Um, a 90,000 square foot museum. So that's a great thing. People can still come and see the aircraft and learn about their history and, and the impact they've made. Yeah, and thanks to Avweb for posting that story. But, you know, that was a terrible accident, Ian. There were seven passengers and three crew members aboard. If I recall, I think four people died. Yeah. And it was just, it was a tragedy. Jim Moore covered that for us because he was based in Connecticut at the time. Hmm. And if I recall, there was an engine problem. The aircraft was trying to return back to the airport. Yeah, back to the airport. It yeah. got down on the runway and veered off into uh, buildings and yeah, stuff. It had a fuel farm or something, yeah. I think, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. So that was, that was bad news. So anyway, Collings Foundation, they're going to end the aircraft tours. And like you said... Sort of no surprise on one end, and there's just a lot of liability. But we can look forward to that museum and maybe keeping that uh, that two-seater P-51 Mustang alive, the B-24 and the B-25 that they offered rides in. Yep, absolutely. And we'll be right back. All right, got to talk about Trevor Jacob. Everyone has been talking about Trevor Jacob. <laughs> yes, if you recall, Trevor is the YouTube guy who um, intentionally jumped out of a Taylor Craft for a promotion. A perfectly good Taylor Craft, which yeah. is really an old, a pretty old airplane. It, it wasn't was. worth a whole lot, but yeah. nonetheless... Uh, yes, he, nonetheless. Who, who flies a Taylor Craft wearing a parachute these days besides Trevor? Yeah, that's right. So yeah, he bailed out, jumped out, the aircraft crashed in the desert, I think... It probably what's really telling is he lied to investigators about what happened, yes. moved the wreckage, and he will spend some time in the clink, David. Yeah, six months. Ian sentenced to six months in a federal prison on December 4th. And that was for what you said, for obstructing a federal investigation, yeah. which was basically lying about it. Uh, if I recall, he got some friends to dismantle the aircraft. They came over in a pickup truck. They made it disappear. He wasn't truthful with investigators, and his pilot certificate was revoked, but he has regained his pilot yes. certificate. Yes, he has. Uh, to me, that's the bigger news, yeah. that he regained his pilot certificate this year, and I am just, I mean, the comments on YouTube are, are just scathing, yeah. you know, towards yep. him. I mean, yes, the airplane wasn't worth a whole lot of money, but... I say he could have hurt someone on the ground. He could have hurt animals. You and I both are dog people. Mm -hmm. He could have hurt any anything on the ground. And, and it just was a dumb stunt to pull. Yeah. And I'll go on yeah. record saying that. Yeah, it was. I mean, a couple of interesting things about this. I mean, one is that he, you know, the 
I think the video was uploaded like late 2021, right? And it's 2023 now. Yeah, there was some time that that passed between yeah. the upload and the and the turmoil that that developed. Yeah, and right. he's just now, of course, been sentenced to six months in jail. But in this video that he just posted is flying again. And so people are like, well, how is that possible? Okay, so, you know, we know like Trent Palmer, for example, his low flying incident happened, I think, even before that, like 2019 or something. And this is still going on. Right. And that's, of course, because he is he's fighting it. So my guess is I don't know. But my guess is what happened here is that Trevor either it was an obvious emergency revocation and he just didn't fight it or he it's possible he even handed over a certificate knowing what was going to happen. Yeah. And, and the YouTube video that he recently posted, he, he does say that it wasn't a, it was not a smart idea. Yeah. He said he felt like he was a grown up, but he didn't act grown up during that incident. And he, he does tell us in the video how he got his certificate back. Cause he had to take the same test that Martha Lunkin had to take all yeah. over again. Yeah. You essentially start from nothing. Yeah. Yeah. But one thing I want to bring up, Ian, he doesn't outright apologize in that Mia Culpa video, number one. No. And it also, in my opinion, shows him breaking the law again. Okay. You know, he's a skateboarder. Yeah. And so he went skateboarding with his two dogs, and they were not on leashes. They were unleashed. <laughs> and and ca- in California law says okay. you have to have your dogs on leashes in okay. parks. <laughs> So I'm just, uh, I'm sure the NTSB and FA are not listening to Hanger Talk. Give that guy a ticket. <laughs> yeah, if they want to pass this on to the California State Patrol or something. You're out for blood. I love it. That's funny. Yeah, you know, I I got to say, I have mixed feelings about this. I mean, you, you're right. The comments on the YouTube video are scathing, which actually surprised me. Because, I mean, obviously, the guy has a lot of views. He, he must have a fan club in the adventure community. Sure. You know, he skydives and skateboards and... I don't know, snowboards and obviously flies. Well, he is a, he's a former Olympic performer. I yeah. mean, he's a competitor in the Olympics. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he must, he must have friends. They did not show up in the comments on the YouTube video. I mean, mm-hmm. it is like people taking him to task. You should never fly again and everything else. I, I have somewhat mixed feelings about this because I mean, it's not revocations, you know, usually aren't lifetime. And so people are sort of given the chance to, you know, make amends. But a couple of people did bring up things that I thought were valid points, which is, you know, like what we were just talking about, which is like, you know, this guy intentionally crashes an airplane, displays all these hazardous attitudes and is able to get a certificate back. It's like I go to counseling three times and I don't have a medical anymore, you know. Right. You're out. Where's the justice in that system? No, it just absolutely doesn't make sense. And honestly, you bring up something as a CFI. I think you bring so much to the table, Ian. That attitude, that that a it the, it can't happen to me attitude, and then you know the attitude of just disregarding, yeah. you know regulations. To I mean, it's just not a safe way to fly. Yeah, yeah, you know? so. yeah. And the other thing is, he says in that video, "Oh, uh, I knew as soon as I landed, I had done something wrong. I felt bad. You know, I'm walking through the brush, cut up, thinking, what have I done?" But that's like, if that were true, you wouldn't have moved the wreckage and tried to cover right. up the crime. You know, so it's like, come yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, I don't buy it. Yeah, I don't buy that. And speaking of not buying things, <laughs> yes. oh my goodness, we oh, got to move yeah. on to the to the Vance aircraft dilemma. Yes, you know they they entered Chapter Eleven bankruptcy court. Ian, this was a staggering revelation to a lot of people. Yeah, it was. I mean, we had heard. Of course, it wasn't too long ago that they came out and said, well, we've got some challenges. We're going to have a new CEO, and you know, kind of entering this new phase, and then very soon after that, have now said they're going to file for Chapter 11. It is shocking because they're so successful. I mean, there's, you know, more than 10,000 airplanes out there. More than 11,000 now. Yeah, they've got some this huge backlog. And you think, how can a company with so much cash flow enter Chapter 11? It's it's staggering. It is, it is. But Vans Aircraft is going to change the way they do business. Number one, Mm -hmm. the kit prices are going up by about 32%. That's indicated on the Vans Aircraft webpage. They have additional new policies moving forward. They're standardizing the kit offerings before. You you could still buy certain options 
uh, for certain prices. Mm -hmm. But then I think people would then pick and choose and really get granular with different options. And it would mm -hmm. mix up the folks that were packing the orders. That's expensive. It yeah. is. It is. That's and so, so that's going to change. But while they're in Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, the company's still going to file for the orders. People are still going to get them, but the prices are going up. And, and looking at the money coming in, this to me was real interesting. The revenue that they had is like, what led them here? What led them to, you know, they sold 11,000 kits. Yeah. Um, 11,000 kits or rather are flying. What's the deal? In 2019, their revenue started going down. They they had 31.5 million bucks. In 2020, 31.1 million dollars with 1,000 extra orders. So the revenue went down about half a million, but they had a thousand more orders. That's the opposite of what should happen. Yeah. The revenue should have gone up yeah. according to that. And in 2022, they lost 3.3 million dollars. And this year alone, they lost. $1 million. Hmm. That's a lot of money to lose. Yeah, for a small company. Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. Yeah, you said they're, the prices are going to go up 30%. So I, I guess the deal with these things, obviously not being a bankruptcy attorney, I don't want to get too far down the road here. But the deal is, you can opt in and say, okay, I'll take my take it on the chin and offer, you know, pay 30% more for my kit. Right. Or you can try and recoup your losses. And the thing is, if you're trying to recoup your losses as a as a depositor, it's like you're you're on the bottom of the list, you know. You are on the bottom of the list during bankruptcy court because the big hits are gonna come first. Like Lycoming, the engine yes. manufacturer, they're gonna get paid off first. Yep. The the aluminum parts distributor, uh, they're gonna get paid off first. Yeah. Uh, avionics, like folks like Garmin, they're gonna get paid off first. And you as a regular just person are way, way down there. Yeah. So yep. Absolutely. Moving forward, they're going to take a deposit that is equal to 35% of the order amount up front. And then within 60 days, I think within 14 days, you have to pay that uh, from 14 days from ordering. And then I want to say it's, uh, it's like within 60 days, they're going to get the whatever you order together and send, send it to you. But when they tell you it's ready, you got to pay the remainder of that money, you know, to mm -hmm. equal mm -hmm. the 100% of the of the kit parts that you just ordered. Yeah. And then you have 14 days to pay for that. So they're they're being more strict with their money coming in and going out. Huh. Where I kind of think that it was there was more loosey-goosey than that and they probably were on the hook for folks who said they wanted to order these parts and kits and all and then really were very slow to pay back. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's bad repercussions if something like that happens. Yeah. And what's interesting, I think, is that if you, you know, talking about being one of those creditors and, and having to pay more and maybe pay more early is that if you in the filing, they talked about how much they owe total. I think it was like over 10 million bucks and they have to list the top 20 creditors. And they did that. First of all, there are they say 25,000 creditors, at least a lot of individuals. Yeah, a lot of individuals. Exactly. Right. Because the number 20th creditor, so number 20 on the list, the 20th most valuable creditor is 35,000 bucks. So, you know, you got thousands and thousands of people that's significantly less money than that. So, gotcha. Well, I mean, that's uh, that that's saying something. Yeah. Uh, you know, the main thing is they were and, and still, as far as I can tell, are, you know, one of the most successful aircraft manufacturing companies yeah. out there. Yeah. And don't forget the RV-15 was introduced a couple of years ago at, at AirVenture to great fanfare. Mm -hmm. People are very excited about seeing that. And I just don't know what's going to happen to that. Dave Hirschman thinks that Vans will still make that RV-15 or sell the potentially sell that design to someone else hmm. who will manufacture it. But we will have to see. Yeah. Yeah. All right, David. Hey, let's talk about some public benefit flying with actor Edward Norton and Angel Flight West director Josh Olson. All right, welcome. Very excited to talk today to both Edward Norton, uh, the actor whom I'm sure all of you know, and Josh Olson, the director of Angel Flight West. Thank you both for joining us. I appreciate it. Good to be here. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. So first, I, I want to get actually a little bit into your background in flying, Edward. Can you tell me how you got started flying? I had a childhood, you know, fascination with aviation and the idea of it. I think in college, I read, uh, I read Antoine de Saint-Exupéry's 
great memoir of flying called Wind, Sand, and Stars, which for pilots, I always say is, I, I think that's the great literary work ever by a by a pilot. It's his chronicle of, of flying the early mail routes from the Sahara up to Paris, and then later from Patagonia to France, if you can imagine people doing that in single engine monohulls without windshields. <laughs> his two books, Wind, Sand, and Stars is really the great one. And then Night Flight are wonderful. They really captivated my imagination. And then uh, in college, I had, did a stint working for the resource management division in Grand Canyon National Park. And uh, we were getting gear in and out of backcountry strips in 206s. And I just remember thinking, I got to I gotta do this. And maybe when I was in college, I felt like I didn't have the, the money. And then later, I was living in New York and I started working in films and I didn't have the time. And finally, but it was always in my my head as a thing I was going to get to. And then finally, um, around 2002, I, my girlfriend at the time was working on a, a film in, in Provo, Utah. And I just started taking lessons down at the field in Provo. And I went from there. I got my license in 2004. So almost 20 years now. Fantastic. And so a lot of AOPA members probably aren't aware, but you actually own one of the previous AOPA sweepstakes airplanes, the, the Aero SUV. So how did you come to that? And, and what kind of flying do you do with it? So I, I wanted to get a 206 specifically because I, I just think it's one of the great, in, in the non-turbine you know turbine planes, it's, I think it's one of the great bush planes ever. And it's, it was so capable when we were working in places like the Grand Canyon or, or later, I, I ended up spending a lot of time in Kenya. I have family out there and I've done a lot of work out there for years and years. And everybody was kicking around in 206s, even sometimes you'd run into a 207, 210s. 180s, you know, and so I, I, I knew I wanted to get a 206 because I was ready to fly that. I knew how to fly that, and also it, it, it was something I knew I was going to get to use in kind of the my my life. But in let's see, this would have been in like 2004. I used to go on the ASO.com website where they would list the you know the plane <laughs> listings, and I had the 206 page saved and. And I realized that they refreshed the new listings every morning at nine o'clock. And so I would kind of sit at 8.59 and I would just start hitting refresh, you know, until I saw the new listings pop up. And um, I had sort of decided in my own mind, I don't know if you remember, but in that period, you know, the 206s, they had sort of started loading them with so much gear that some of the useful load was actually kind of diminishing. Yeah. And And I really wanted the payload. And so I had this notion that I was going to find an old one and refurbish it, you know, kind of get something clean and strip it and and make a little project out of it. So one morning I was so familiar with the 206 page that I knew at a glance if there was anything new. And one morning I hit the thing and I could see immediately there was a new listing because it was longer than the other ones. They would all say like 1979 U206F, you know, 1982 U206A. And I could see there was one that was longer right away. And I looked at it and it was longer because it said, it said 1976 U206F parentheses, 1999 AOPA rebuild. Hmm. And I thought it can't be, like, it, can't, it can't be that plain. So I clicked on it and immediately I could see that it was the AOPA sweepstakes 206. It took me about 30 seconds to scan the specs on it and look at it. And I realized this was basically the project I was planning to take on myself done better than I could ever do it. And I, I hit the, I rang the guy's number and said, Hey, I'm calling about the 206. And he said that just, he said, that's only been up for 30 seconds. Were you just sitting there waiting? And I said, yes. And I said, I'm sending you $5,000 right now, you know, to put a hold on it. <laughs> um, yeah. I'll be there. He was in Driggs, Idaho. And I said, I'll be, I'll be there by this weekend. And I went up and, and what it was, was I think whoever won it, I never met who had won it. They, I, I think, unfortunately, like they'd had to sell it because of the, you know, the windfall tax kind of thing or something like that. Yeah. It had gone to a guy who had barely used it. And then it had gone to this guy, Jeff in, in Idaho, who was a airplane mechanic, as I recall, really, really nice guy. And he had another project he wanted to get onto. And so he was, he was unloading it. And, um, it, it was super lucky because it, it was beautifully redone and optimized in so many great ways from a Horton stall kit to a, a turbine engine mount. And there was an oil cooler, you know, they moved the oil cooler back against the wall of STC to keep the, the IO 550 from overheating um, so much. And it had 
just great engine monitors and for the time great avionics and uh beefed up gearboxes beefed up brakes all just every everything to make it and it had a tent and it had all this kind of fun stuff so it, it was an instant love affair and i for many years i never flew anything else i really i would mess around in cirruses and stuff like that but i I think I have I the large bulk of my, I think I have six or 700 hours in that plane, maybe even more. Um, and then, uh, and it was funny, immediately I, I would fly it cross country even then, you know, cause sometimes I want it, like if I was shooting the Hulk in Canada, I would take it to Canada for the summer and park it at the city island airport there in Toronto. And so I'd have it on the weekends. And I, many times, I mean, uh, quite a number of times I've landed in some Wyoming strip to get gas and seen i remember really one time I, this guy in a cowboy hat got out of one of those old czechoslovakian crop dusters and i saw him double see me in double take and and i and you know i'm used to that and i thought in the fbo he was he was gonna he comes over he looks at me he goes i bet you get this all the time but that looks like the aopa 206 <laughs> you know he, he had no idea who I was, and he was completely. I said, "Yes, it is." And he goes, "Oh, I dreamed about that plane. Could I have a look at her?" You know, and I, I've, I've, I've gotten that a number of times, partly because it has the cool, it has the AOPA sticker on the tail, but um, yeah, distinctive looking. It definitely, yeah. So uh, it's, it's been great, uh, and I, and I ended up going back up to the guys that you guys found in Sacramento, who had done the custom panel to sort of, up, you know, keep upgrading the panel. But it's been a beautiful. Uh, long relationship yeah. with that plane. Yeah, which is unusual. I mean, you know, most pilots, it's like a couple of years, they want to try something else and they upgrade or trade. But no, this has been a, a long-term relationship. I mean, do you, do you have any other airplane envy at this point? No, um, it's great. I, You know, I, I appreciate planes like the Cirruses and stuff like that. They're great. For me, there's a utility to the 206 that in, in piston planes, it's really hard to match because with the it had the one when the AOPA did it, they put the, those flint tip tanks. So it has like little, you know, if you don't fill the tip tanks, it's got 200 pounds of extra load on it. And um, it's actually a really great plane for flying around in California, putting bikes in the back, putting, you know, and I really enjoyed it. Um, later, when I had kids and dogs and more of a family and stuff, I there was a moment in sort of the COVID period when <laughs> for once, like the secondary market came down on some things and I was able to get a Pilatus. And so I've my my last couple hundred hours have all been in a Pilatus, um, which is which is kind of a great step up from a two hundred six because it's still a very much a, a plane you really can fly as a single pilot, and it's amazing. It's it's got the same capabilities and mission kind of parameters as as a two hundred six, but just obviously with almost a cargo plane's level of carrying stuff. But it's a Pilatus off pavement and short field takeoff and landing it's absolutely astonishing that the performance on that plane so it's been they're, they're actually kind of cousins i think yeah you definitely you have a type no question yeah yeah that's you know and and i don't know for obviously many pilots there's something just technically interesting about flying jets or whatever but i don't have the time to do the recurrence training in jets and it's too expensive for me you know it's like i i can't see myself being a, a pilot with the consistency and the budget but also the, the the it's not the type of interesting that it's not the type of flying that interests me as much i really like stick and rudder flying and i like flying to strange places and being able to get in and out of places and i like um i've flown a lot in kenya and the 206 is still the best plane out there very cool so one kind of flying that i guess is new to you that you've just sort of discovered is is some of this you know, charitable flying, private charitable flying that you've done recently for Angel Flight West. And so, Josh, tell us a bit about what Angel Flight West is and, and what your mission is. Sure. Edward was generous enough to fly that 206 to fly a patient and his mother home from treatment at UCLA Medical Center to outskirts of San Diego where they live. And that, that's kind of a good microcosm of what Angel Flight does. Luis is a 12-year-old boy, been flying since he was four. Uh, he was diagnosed with liver cancer, and because of the treatment and the cancer itself that kind of ravaged his body, he needed a liver transplant as well. Um, so we've been flying him back and forth to UCLA Medical Center that has an advanced pediatric liver department uh, that's able to service him and meet the needs of his illness. Happy to report he's a thriving 12-year-old now with, you know, post-transplant needs. Uh, the cancer uh, is gone for now, 
which is great. Um, so we've flown him dozens of times back and forth. And for those that are wondering, well, you know, San Diego to Santa Monica isn't that long of a of a trip. Uh, it's not. Um, but with two working class parents uh, with other kids and needs at home and Southern California traffic, it's not long before, you know, that's uh, eight to 10 hour round trip for him. Mm. And then with the illness that he was battling, not the best health outcome to be sitting in traffic with a parent while they're trying to get home to the other kids, even if they did have reliable transportation, which in this case, they didn't. So our volunteer pilots volunteered to fly those families to and from that treatment. Angel Flight has been doing this for 40 years, found in 1983, and just had the 100,000th flight that brought Luis and his mother to UCLA. And then Edward and another Angel Flight pilot, Michael, flew them home. So that that is what we do all day, every day. We do about 10 to 15 of these flights each day. And uh, what we are really is a volunteer matching system at our core, right? We, we have a, a staff and technology that works with healthcare partners and patient groups to vet the needs of these patients and make sure they're okay to fly in small non-pressurized airplanes and that's not going to affect negatively affect their health outcomes. And then we find volunteer pilots and commercial airline partners that donate the flights for them to be able to access that. And that, that's what happens on a daily basis for us. And, and that's what we're about. For those that don't know, the, the need for transportation and healthcare is massive after cost. It's the biggest barrier to accessing care. And we're trying to grow in to be a really uh, unique solution uh, to meet that need. And um, we're excited that volunteer pilots like Edward and others, you know, that love to use their planes get to get to do so and get an amazing feeling after completing one of those flights that you do something you love, you give back to your community or to others. And it's really one of those rare organization instances where literally everybody wins. Great. So Edward, was this the, um, the first flight you've taken for Angel Flight West or have you done some in the past? Uh, yeah, it was the first one. Yeah. Have you done other public benefit flying before? Longtime friend and fellow pilot of mine, we we had looked at. Uh, there's there's another organization called EcoFlight that very similar ethos to Angel Flight West, uh, but seeking pilots to fly for conservation organizations that mm. need you know either either want to get constituents or politicians up in the air to take a look at conservation land issues and things like that. That was the only thing we had done. I mean, you know, I I was kind of I was surprised and in a way dismayed when I realized the scale of what Angel Flight was doing and that I hadn't been aware of it because I've been flying for 20 years and it's been around and I should have been more tuned into it. And that in some ways that was that that, that underlined the value of, of doing what we did, which was the symbolic 100,000th flight. It was a great, it was an amazing milestone for Josh and for the organization, but it was also a nice opportunity to try to, you know, kind of solve this same problem that, I, you know, I, I hadn't heard of it. And, and I think more pilots should know about it because a lot of us fly recreationally, essentially, you know, we, we don't, we don't fly with purpose um, or professionally fly for fun. And the whole idea of getting to apply something you enjoy doing as a hobby or recreationally, or just as a avocation with an ethos of service and with, and, you know, helping someone out is great. I, th- I think lots of pilots, I think lots of pilots are consciously or unconsciously hungry for that kind of adventure, that kind of opportunity to convert, you know, something we love doing and, you know, but that burns gas and, you know, kind of the, the hundred dollar hamburger tradition, right. flying out to Catalina and getting a bison burger or, going up to some place it's it's super fun but it's it's especially cool to uh go um plug yourself into a system where people who need the help are getting benefit from your hobby and and i found even just in this round of mike you know my friend mike is a um, fully professional pilot jet jet crew pilot and someone you should interview just because he's he's one of the most diverse pilots i know he's flown everything from DC sixes in Alaska winter operations wow. to, to Kenyan bush flying to corporate charter to in, in challengers to Reno air races. You know, he, he is a true um, Renaissance pilot and was one of my original instructors back in the early two thousands. And just, you know, e- even he who is fully professional, we, we were both really struck by how 
thorough and and diligent the angel flight west system is it's really well designed to plug yourself into this matrix of requests you know supply and demand and then mm -hmm. it, it's like if you're an amateur pilot you'll also get the experience of sort of feeling like you've kind of got to spruce up your professionalism a little bit to because you're you obviously got to be attentive to the sensitivity of the situation and this you know the safety criteria isn't just about yourself anymore you're, you're you got to really be contemplating what making good decisions on the basis of of a passenger and and with special needs and that's that's really cool it, it it's a cool experience cool sense of responsibility and and I, I I only just plugged into it myself but even at the um event that angel flight held for this milestone it was it was incredibly moving um the family Luis and his mother spoke and you know, there wasn't a dry eye in the room. Like they, they really have been massively affected by the organization. And, um, and there was a, one pilot in particular who I think has flown the family like many times. And you, you could tell the family considered him literally almost like a hero to their family and, and a member of their family. And it was just, the whole thing was very, very, very touching and very, uh, I said at the time, it kind of reminded me of like, you know, I, I feel like it it's the best characteristics of American society on display because it it it's an all volunteer organization that's come together to try to solve a problem and just nothing but, you know, positive dividends, positive ripple effects moving out between people and everything about it's great. And I think um, given that they're already doing what is it, Josh, like 5000 flights a year you guys are running at this point. Um, that's correct. And that that's and that that's not meeting demand even close. You know that that's not even close to the demand side of the request you get. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So so I think the 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 wider pilot community knowing more about it and knowing how how many people there are that need pilots to team up to handle legs like someone taking one leg handing off to someone else. You know, it's there's a real need there, and I think there are, there are, there are so many pilots who would love any excuse, and this is a really good excuse to go out and fly. And I think um, it's worth noting too. I mean, I think the AOPA obviously is a terrific advocate, I think, for the American civil aviation system. And we all see those things like Migs Field in Chicago or the constant threats of shutting down Santa Monica airport, et cetera, that, that make you realize the degree to which a lot of people take for granted what we've got in the american civil aviation system but it is truly like nothing else in the world there's i mean america and canada to to some degree too but um or to to a large degree we we have something truly extraordinary there are so few places where civilians can plug into the aviation system and where there's such an unbelievable network of airfields you know um, and places to go that even outside of controlled airspace or or in only moderately controlled airspace. And it's hard for me to imagine something like Angel Flight existing in Europe, to be honest. It's it's so much more difficult to be a private pilot and to fly within the system there. And uh, and I think it's, in a lot of ways, what Angel Flight is doing and is able to do is a testament to how, how incredible it is that we've got this system in the United States that the democratization of aviation in the U.S. is pretty unprecedented, you know. Yeah, very true. You, you mentioned the, you know, the the need, and that there's more demand for flights than there are pilots to fulfill them. And I'm wondering about also, you know, talking about the professionalism and the safety aspect. I, I can imagine that some people come into this; it's a little intimidating in a lot of ways. I mean, it's like you know, we've flown friends or we've flown family. This is one of the few times where recreational pilots will fly someone they don't really know. That, that can be very intimidating, not to mention that some of them, as you mentioned, Edward, probably do have some sort of special needs. So how approaching the flight, did you feel, were you comfortable, relaxed, felt like it was going to be a great time? I mean, or did you feel some of that sort of responsibility, intimidation that might go along with it, especially the first time? Only in a positive way. I thought it was really cool to, you know, it's <laughs> almost like going back to the days when you're watching like the John and Martha King uh, videos, you know, it was like Angel Flight's got this whole onboarding system. And so, and some of it, you, you know, your pilot mind is going, yeah, I know this. And then you go, oh yeah, I didn't think about that. Like, you know, that aspect of it. And, and, uh, I, I thought it was really fun. It gives you a sense of responsibility, but only in, in the nice way, in the way of like, you're kind of focused on the needs of someone else and you want to make sure they have a good experience and, you know, 
it, it makes it makes you step up your game a little. You're like you don't want to make un- uncoordinated turns or you know <laughs> get behind. You want to kind of do things in the way you should fly, especially in IFR. You know you 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 should be flying. You should be flying well um, and flying smoothly. And in my case, fortunately, the California Coastal Corridor is I am very familiar with. So uh, going up through the LAX special flight rules and down to San Diego was is something we've got pretty well dialed in to yeah. the um, to the flight plan on our Garmin. Yeah, it was a milk run. And, um, but it was, uh, we had a beautiful day and it was nice. And, and actually... You know, we were out there over, you kind of like end up west of Long Beach. You're out over the water a bit to come down toward Palomar there. And, and, um, the boy and his mom, we, we saw, we saw one of those, uh, kind of super pods of dolphins. We saw about 500 dolphins and he was pretty excited about that. Wow. Cool. Fantastic. That is cool. Yeah. Josh, can you, can you address that? I mean, do new pilots, do you find that that's maybe an impediment to people starting a little bit and, and how do you kind of help them through that process? Yeah, Ian, it's a great question because we do find that a lot, especially on that first flight. You know, people sign up, they're like, oh, this is cool. You know, I want to help. I want to get in there. What a great way to use my flying. You know, as Edward said, what a great excuse to go flying, right, to help someone else. Um, But then they get nervous, right? Like they're used to flying with maybe just friends or flying alone. And then they're like, well, what's this going to be like? Is this person going to be getting sick in my back seat? Do I need to like have a nurse on board, like all these questions that they have. And, you know, essentially it is like having a friend fly in the back. And in in the case of Luis Maria, for example, a lot of these passengers have flown multiple times. So they kind of know the routine. They're usually a little chatty on their way to treatment. They usually sleep because they're exhausted on the way home. So that, that, but that bar is one that, you know, is a, is a psychological bar to cross. So we always encourage folks to fly with others that have flown angel flights before. You know, Edward flew with with Mike, who'd flown a, a who, who'd done this kind of flying before, which is always helpful. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is, you know, that the onboarding process that Edward mentioned. You know, we have AOPA to thank for a lot of that. Um, you know, we created a class. I think it's still your number one taking class on AOPA SI as part of our orientation, just to make sure that you know you're thinking through this. Uh, type of flying, you know, and the, and the late Richard McSpadden had helped us install a safety SMS that was kind of scalable for angel flight. And one that I'm super happy will be forever part of his legacy because he really helped us think critically through this. And he looked at our data, first of all, and we've had very few incidents uh, across the 100,000 flights we've done. And, you know, his his statement was similar to Edwards. You, you just kind of take a different level of approach that you would to this than to flying to Catalina for a bison burger, right? Like, you know that there's someone else, there's precious cargo in your plane, so you're going to take that little extra time of, of planning. And then, and then we always try to focus on a culture of safety, right? So self-reporting, personal minimums, cancel at any time. These aren't a, like you've got to get there or this passenger dies type of thing. These are all outpatient treatments. We do have backup you know, flights for commercial sometimes. We can't do have the ability to reschedule. Sometimes the patient has the ability to drive, that kind of thing. So we try to de-escalate that, but also present a level of professionalism that Edward just re- referenced so that these flights are safe and that some of those barriers that you're worrying about someone in the backseat can be mitigated a little bit because, you know, you've got a coordination team there that has talked to the passenger that's briefed them on what to expect, all those things. Uh, and that has some recourse, you know, if you run into anything in flight or have to reroute or, you know, whatever the case may be that, uh, that provides them a level of, of distance to our arm's length when needed. Cause sometimes it's hard to cancel a flight when, you know, the passengers really have been looking forward to it. So you call the office or you send us an email or text and, and we jump in there and do that for you. Okay, cool. So if somebody's interested, what sort of experience do they need to have? And then how do they get started? Yeah. So, so first of all, anyone can volunteer with angel flight. So, you know, we are a volunteer driven organization. So, Everything from riding right seat to calling pilots to doing healthcare outreach or, you know, exhibiting at a AOPA fly in booth to recruit new pilots. We need volunteers for everything. So anyone can sign up to fly as a as a command pilot. The minimum for Angel Flight West is 250 PIC hours and then some currency and insurance requirements, which most people have. So the insurance is 500,000 for a plane, 100,000 per seat. 
and then the currency requirements are kind of a tiered level of either hours flown or proficiency taken, VFRs, that kind of thing. It's all on our website um, at angelflightwest.org. And uh, but if if you're working up to that 250, you know it's waived if you have your commercial, for example. Um, but like I said, there's other t- other opportunities to get plugged in, and it's nice to you know meet other pilots with different kinds of aircraft, and you know everyone kind of has the same. Uh, goal and mission mission in mind. So it's a it's a really great volunteering opportunity. I started with Angel Flight as a volunteer, uh, and just quickly fell in love with the culture and the people and the and the mission itself. Fantastic. Well, thank you both so much. I appreciate it. Congratulations on the hundred thousand. That's a incredible when you think about it. I mean, that's an amazing accomplishment. And um, I hope uh, I hope you have many more successful flights. Well, thanks, and thanks for allowing us to share our story. And uh, appreciate. Yeah, I'd highly, highly encourage people to check it out. I think it's uh, makes you a better pilot, but it's also a great expansion of the reason to to go fire up. Yeah, and, and uh, Angel Flight West, I'm biased towards, but you know, Edward mentioned some earlier. Ian, you referenced there's there's a bunch of different public benefit flying charities. Um, I sit on the board of uh, Air Care Alliance, and mm-hmm. um, you know whether you know environmental flying like what uh, Lighthawk or South Wings or some of the other groups are doing that Edward mentioned earlier. Um, but you have pilots and pause, you have veterans airlift command, like almost any kind of cause you're passionate about. There's some, some volunteer flying opportunities. So as Edward said, I would encourage anyone to, to check those out. Uh, great way to stay current, to do a mission that you're not normally used to stay sharp as a pilot, but literally right before this podcast, I was speaking to a pilot and they were like, I feel like I get way more out of this than I'm actually <laughs> actually giving. I mean, the, the patient's making me cookies and telling me thank you. And I was like, I feel like I should be doing the same thing because you gave me the opportunity to do what I love today. So it's pretty neat. And I, I think if you do get in, interested and involved, uh, that volunteer experience will be pretty special. I was especially interested to hear that Norton would fly the 206 to the shooting location and then on the weekends get in the airplane and kind of check out the local area. I think that's so cool that he continued to fly even during shoots. Wow. He must have had some special uh, dispensation for that, you know, to to not get caught on the carpet for, for flying yeah. during the shoots, you know. Right. Right. But that, that's a great use of general aviation, though, Ian, to mm-hmm. fly around and check out the area and also to let off some steam. I mean, acting you know, that's, it's, it's a job. I mean, I would love to have that job, but they're waking up early. They're staying late. They've got odd hours, Yeah, you know, and he, and as anyone who's seen Edwards movies can attest, he, he puts his heart and soul into that ability. So, and more power to him for flying that, that arrow SUV 206 around too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Hey, I think that's it for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. I'm David Tulistone. For you, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangar talking wherever you get your podcasts. All right. We'll see you next time for the year end wrap up. That's right, Ian. See you for the year end wrap up. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.